As Jeb mentioned, the Kidders are in New Hampshire on a much-deserved, much-needed vacation. And I know the Kidders are enjoying their trip. And I'm sure I talked with Jeremy the other day, and I know that he misses all of us. And, and I trust that we miss him too. Uh, Jeremy would be very happy to hear that he is missed. But just in case that is in jeopardy, he did ask me to speak this morning to <laughs> ensure that when he comes back, he will be missed. So... You can call me the contingency plan. <laughs> so for the last few weeks, we've been going through Titus. We looked at the necessity for, local ch- for elders in the local church, and we also looked at the character and giftedness of elders in the local church. And you will find that our passage today, uh, we're going to see the prime example, one of the prime, prime examples of why the elders, why Paul is called Titus to commission elders there in Crete, and also the necessity for elders in the local church today. Again, Paul charged Titus to appoint elders in every town there in Crete, and we find that part of that purpose, why Paul did that, is found in in verse 9. I'll go ahead and read it for us. This is where Jeremy ended last week, verse 9 of Titus chapter 1. When Paul's speaking about the elders, he states that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And I think that's where our passage today is really going to be unpacking who are those who contradict it and... um, And we'll be discussing that. So not only must the elders be capable of teaching sound doctrine, what accords with truth, but they also need to be capable and and able to rebuke those who are contradicting the truth. So please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. If you aren't already there, the passage we'll be looking at this morning is Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. Again, Titus chapter 1, 10 to 16, a portrait of false teachers. Please follow as I, as I read. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans... A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your grace, an opportunity to to know you, and also for your word, to understand and to know who you are. We, We thank you for your word this morning, Lord. And I pray that as you open our eyes and open our minds to understanding in your word that we would use that truth in our lives. And I pray that you would provide the, the work, the fruit, 
in our lives and the grace in order for us to, to know and understand what your word says. Just like we sang, Lord, speak, O Lord. Speak, speak to us through your, through your scriptures. Let your words come out of my mouth and keep me from error. And may you ultimately be glorified in the presentation of your word today. In your name we pray, amen. So, I have, haven't taken any classes, any speech classes on, you know, speaking to audiences. So, I got a few good words this morning on, you know, what to do and what to avoid. So, if you think I'm looking at you, I'm not. I'm looking at your forehead, okay? <laughs> I'm looking at your forehead. And if I can't do that, I'll be looking at the person that everyone thinks is behind them in the back, which would be Jeremy in this case. Jeremy Sweet, back there. So... Don't think if I'm making some point, you know, that I'm saying that you're the false teacher or something like that. Don't, don't, be, uh, don't be scared that, about that. Uh, I won't say some of the other wisdom that I got about how to deal with audiences, <laughs> but we'll just keep it at the foreheads for now. <laughs> Our first section that we'll be looking at today as we look at a portrait of false teachers is going to be a description of false teachers. That's your first blank. Verses 10 to the first part of 13, we see a description of false teachers. So I'll go ahead and reread that for us, keep it fresh in our minds. Verses 10 to 13a, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So in the description that we have of false teachers, the first thing that I'll draw our attention to are their words and their character. Again, Paul has commissioned Titus to appoint elders in every town in Crete for a purpose, for a reason. And part of that reason is, as Paul will explain here, to refute or rebuke those who contradict the truth. And he gives us a good example of, of who those are in, the, in this section that we're looking at today. So their words and their character. What are their words? Some of the words that highlight their words in the section that we're looking at. Empty talkers, useless talkers, is another way to understand that. They use speech with insincere words and, and they're careless with you know, what their words do or produce. Liars. And also their words have a destructive manner, a destructive characteristic about them that we see that they're upsetting whole households by what they teach. We find that in verse 11. Also, their character. What do, what do we see about their character? What type of character do these false teachers have? Well, they're insubordinate, deceivers, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Those are some of the descriptions about them, about their character. It is interesting to note, and you, you guys will see as we go through this, if you've been with us for the past two weeks, sort of the differences between what the elders must be and who these... these uh, deceivers are, who these false teachers are. One of the things that I see as a sort of division or, or a difference between the two is that these deceivers are insubordinate. 
insubordinate, rebellious. Um, and we see ver- in, in, chap- sorry, in chapter 1, verse 6 of the same passage, that the elders, the first sphere that Paul looks at when he's telling Titus to consider who to consider for an elder, what he must be, well, he must be someone who, who deals with his household well. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And one of the first things that Paul talks about are his children, right? He must be a, a one-woman man, but he must also have children who are faithful. And part of being faithful, they are to not be open to the charge of debauchery, and they're also not to be insubordinate or to be open to the charge of insubordination. So it's interesting that, that Paul certainly wants these elders here in Crete that Paul is appointing to have dealt with insubordination well already. And where do you see that most? Well, you're going to see it mostly in your households. And as many of you guys know, I'll be seeing that in my household uh, here in a, a month or so, Lord willing. So uh, I'll have plenty of, uh, of experience after you know, preaching this sermon. Like, oh man, I totally understand what Paul's talking about. So... If, you can, if, if the elders can deal with the insubordination in their households, then they are equipped to deal with the insubordination of the false teachers in Crete as well. Next, we look at their doctrine. Their doctrine. What is it that they're teaching? What is it that they're about? First, we find that their doctrine is gospel compromising. It's gospel compromising. Part of what explains them, as, as Jeremy has mentioned in the previous weeks, elders, as, 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 as they're appointed, aren't different than you know, normal Christians. They're just those who are excelling, right? Jeremy says, if, if the goal is, is Christ in this direction, then Paul is essentially telling Titus to pick out those front runners. Well, likewise, as, as Paul's giving a description of, of the false teachers, you know, if he's going to use one group to sort of describe them, if he's going to use one group to explain who they are, he chooses to use the circumcision party. They're the ones that are running in, the, in this direction of false teaching, probably the, the hardest or with the most offense. They're the front runners. And he says that in verse 10, especially those of the circumcision party. So we also get a little bit of why this doctrine is important and what their doctrine is in 1 Timothy 4. I'll go ahead and read it. You don't have to turn there. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence, from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with thanksgiving, if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So you have these people of the circumcision party who are adding to the gospel, compromising the gospel. And that's seen clearly in Acts chapter 15 when Paul, just like he's charging Titus to elect elders who can refute and rebuke these false teachers, refute and rebuke, you know, in conversation with words, he also has done this himself. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1 to 2, we find out a little more about this circumcision party, what they believe, and why they are a danger to any church But some men came down from Judea 
and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here they are adding circumcision to the gospel. And what's Paul's and Barnabas' response? After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So Paul already has some experience with how detrimental this teaching can be, how detrimental it can be to, for these false teachers to add circumcision or you know, ceremonial obedience as a necessity to be saved. And we can face a lot of those things today. You know, a lot of people believe that you need to be baptized to be saved. Well, we believe here at Martinsville that baptism isn't a requirement for salvation. God does not hold out the giving of, of his grace until baptism. It's just an act of obedience. So these, I mean, that's sort of a, a modern-day correlation to um, something that's being added to the gospel. So they're compromising the gospel in their teaching, and they're also embracing the world. So they're, they're, their teaching is world-embracing. It's the next blank there. And how do they do this? Well, we read that they're teaching for shameful gain what, ought not to, what they ought not to teach, and that one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So clearly, in their teaching, these false teachers are also, in some way, promoting the idea that you can, your actions don't mean anything, and, and you can live and look like the world and, and still be pleasing to God and still be godly. So you can live like the world and still be godly. And that culture clearly is explained by one of their own prophets, someone who had a pretty good pulse on the culture, Epimides, a 6th century poet from Crete, says that Cretans are always sort of a blanket statement for Cretans. Certainly not true in every instance, but if you're going to paint it with a broad brush, he'd say that the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So here you have the character of these false teachers as, as being exactly that, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, or explained earlier, insubordinate deceivers, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You have this, this character about them, and they're promoting in the name of, you know, teaching God's word and, and, and being prophets and, and teachers, they're promoting this lifestyle to the church, to the church at Crete, to the flock. So they are, you know, chewing this all in, or taking this all in and chewing on it, and, and naturally, if someone's teaching you, they sit in sort of a position of authority, and you want to imitate them. And Paul recognizes that in a good way. He says to, to look out for, for those who are doing well in the church and to, to follow their faith, to imitate their faith, he says. So there is something to that, but certainly not when it's those who are teaching falsely and saying somehow that we can live lives that are contrary to the gospel but still be godly. So their doctrine is gospel-compromising and world-embracing. Live like the culture. Also, their motives. What is their motives? Well, we find that clearly in verse 11. They must be silenced. Why? They're upsetting whole households by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So they're financially motivated. They're in this for the money. 
which is another core or another difference between them and the elders that Paul is, is charging Titus to appoint in every, in every town. As we see here in verse 7, as we're getting um, an understanding of what the elders must not be, Jeremy preached on that last week, what they must be, what they must not be, verse 7, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent, and here it is, or greedy for gain. And that's what these false teachers are. They're greedy for gain. They have financial motivations for shameful gain. And there's no shortage of people who will be willing to tell you that you can live like the world, you can live like how you want to live, and God will still be happy with you, still be pleased with you as long as you go to church, as long as you, you know, attend youth group or attend a Bible study. There's no shortage of people who will write books and who will encourage you under the guise of financial motivation to say, go ahead, live like the world. Because honestly, our hearts are prone to wander, aren't they? And if someone tells us that we can have the best of both worlds, that we can live like the world, we can do exactly what our hearts are inclined to do, and we can still go to heaven, I think, you know, outside of, of God's grace and outside of teaching against that, we'll all be signing up for that and buying that book. So there's no shortage of that, and their motivation is much like those that we looked, looked back in, in 1 Timothy as we were going through that a few months ago as well. Financially motivated, elders must not be this. They must not be financially motivated. And lastly, their danger. In a description of, of who these False teachers are, probably most importantly, is their danger. And their danger is that they're upsetting whole households or turning upside down the faith of entire households. And that's, what Paul, that's why Paul has charged the elders to rebuke them because of this danger. And we see in verse, we see that danger again in verse 12 or sorry, verse 11, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're upsetting whole families, and Paul is concerned with the flock. He's caring for the flock and looking out for them by dealing with and doing something with these false teachers. When I was a young boy, I remember we, my mom and I went to Toys R Us, and we got these action figure toys that I liked. I really enjoyed action figure toys when I was a little boy. And once, you know, I leave them out in the backyard and my brother came one day and he dug a hole somewhere in the backyard and threw them in there and covered it up. And I didn't realize this until it was one rainy day. So the rain's pouring down and I'm like, Darren, where's my toys? And he's like, oh, I, you know, dug them up in the backyard. So I'm like, oh no, I gotta go get those. But mom said I had to wait until after the rain stops. So after the rain stops, I'm out there with a shovel. I'm six or seven years old, so I couldn't really use the shovel that well, but it's like twice my size. But I'm out there shoveling, looking for my toys, and I couldn't find them. And after about an hour of looking for my toys, I was furious. I was frustrated. I was so angry that I didn't have my little idle toys that I went inside. And in talking to my mom, I could barely get out what happened before I started talking about what should be done with Darren. I was like, toys, backyard, Darren, you need to, he needs to be punished. He needs to, in ways my mom would do that, write a book report or, you know, he needs to write 150 times. I will not, you know, 
destroy Greg by, you know, burying his toys in the backyard. Whatever the, the discipline was, I was trying to get there and explain it all at the same time. And that's what you'll see Paul doing here. You see, first he's trying to give a description to Titus of who these false teachers are. But in the middle of that, you'll see in verse 11, he almost can't help but be disgusted by uh, these false teachers and, and give us a little hint as to what, what we should do about it, what, what, uh, what the result of, of these false teachers, should be, false teachers should be. Here it is in verse 11. In the middle of his description of these false teachers, he starts out, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole households. And that's where we're getting to. The next point is dealing with false teachers. So you can imagine Paul's not very happy with these false teachers and in the middle of his description of who they are and, and what characterizes them, he wants to get to, he's itching to get to how to deal with them. So dealing with false teachers, we'll see in verse 13 to 14, the end of verse 13 to 14. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, Sorry about that. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So dealing with these false teachers, Paul has a method and he has a motivation. Paul's method in dealing with these false teachers was not only realized as early as verse 11, but it was also realized in verse 9, sort of this statement about the giftedness of false teach, or sorry, of, of elders. The giftedness of elders is that they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they might be able to give instruction or teaching in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there, some Bibles say refute or rebuke. You have the same word here in verse 13, except it's added. It's a different dimension. So we go from rebuking them or refuting them to silencing them. And now Paul says, how are we to deal with these false teachers? Well, you need to rebuke them sharply. If you turn to Galatians chapter 1, Paul also gives a reason as to, as to why we're dealing with these false teachers in such a harsh way. Because Paul will elsewhere give the Christians counsel on how to deal with, you know, situations in the church or, or how to rebuke those in the church, and he won't come down with this type of ferocity. In, in, first, sorry, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, But even if we or an angel should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. So Paul cares. He cares about what's being taught about the gospel, what's being explained about the gospel, because God cares about what's being taught and explained about the gospel. So Paul here uses a very strong method of dealing with these false teachers because he's dealing with a very serious issue. And then also to add some balance with that, okay, um, these teachers are setting themselves up as teachers for the church, and this is a young church, as Jeremy has mentioned the last few weeks. This is a young church in Crete. This isn't a, an established church in uh, Ephesus where Titus is, has been commissioned to appoint elders. This is a very young church and very still near to 
um, the lives that they were living prior to God saving them. So Paul is very, very concerned with what is being taught here, and so his method is likewise as urgent as his concern. In 2 Timothy, we see sort of the correlation, or sorry, not the correlation, the difference between how to deal with those inside the church, lest we leave here and start rebuking one another sharply and silencing one another and, uh, and going about it in that way. We're dealing with a very serious issue here. We're not dealing with, you know, amillennial versus premillennial or, or some inside the house or inside the church issue that um, doesn't conflict with the gospel but is merely a, a, a preference of how you read your word and, and what you learn from, from God's word. As we read here in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's servant, 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, if you guys are there. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may, be, and they may come to their senses and escape the, from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here Paul uses not so much of a strong verb or action in dealing with those who you know, don't believe the same thing as you do because they're not influencing the church. When you have false teachers who are under the guise of, of leaders in the church and, and teachers in the church coming and saying that you need to be baptized to be saved or in this day and age that you need to be circumcised and you need to adopt Jewish law in order to be saved, then that's where we draw the line. But when it's an in-house issue or if it's something where we're dealing with outsiders who necessarily don't believe the same things that we do and, and you, know, you don't have to go very far to find those types of people, how are we supposed to deal with them? What is our demeanor? Well, it's, it's one of, of kindness and gentleness and relying on God to change their hearts perhaps. But also we see Paul's motive in these verses as well. Not only his method on how to deal with them, but the motive behind the, the method. Not devoting themselves, or therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So Paul has the flock in mind here. And this, this shouldn't be surprising to us. Paul starts out this book here, this letter to Titus, in chapter 1, verse 1, reads this. Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Paul wants this, this church, he wants the Cretans to know the truth. And he's, and he's giving Titus, this commission of first importance, of most importance, to put in order what is lacking by electing elders for the good of the people, for the good of the flock. So to keep the flock sound in faith is your blank there. To keep the flock sound in faith. That's his motivation. He's also motivated to avoid further false teaching. He wants to avoid further false teaching. You see that in verse 14. After they are to be sound in the faith, he also doesn't want the flock to devote themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So he has a dual purpose of not only keeping their faith sound, but also preventing um, further 
assimilation of this, this being taught. Expositor's commentary has a good sort of brief explanation on what this silencing and what this refuting looks like. The offenders must be refused opportunities to spread their teachings in the churches. Silencing them by a logical refutation of their views, making further dissemination impossible. So he, Paul wants to put the brakes on this type of teaching in the church so they can no longer further upset entire households and upset the faith of, of God's elect. And he has that in view. And this false teaching, this danger, this, with this in view, Paul wants the false teachers to be rebuked to be silenced and to be rebuked sharply. Lastly, we'll take a look at the damnation of the false teachers. The damnation of the false teachers. Verses 15 to 16. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So the first thing Paul highlights about these false teachers is, in the end, it has to do with their hearts. And if you have defiled heart, a defiled heart, which is our next blank, this is what these false teachers have, they have defiled hearts. And that's ultimately what needs to change about them. Well, if everyone could turn to Matthew 23, we'll look at what Jesus has to say about defiled hearts and about these teachers who are trying to present themselves as teachers, as, as, as those to be followed and, and, and those to be obeyed, financially motivated. But in the end, Paul points back to who they are which is clearly seen in their hearts. Matthew 23, verse 25 to 26, Jesus says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside may be clean also. What they need is inward change as opposed to outward change. They have this idea that they can do things on the outside, and perhaps we've been taught this too, that if you can just clean up your image, if you can just stop you know, saying bad words, if you can just stop getting angry at people, then you'll become a Christian. That's what Christians are. They're just people who don't get mad and and get upset at people. And like these Pharisees, these false teachers are trying to clean the outside of the cup. But ultimately, it's their hearts that are defiled and their hearts that need to be changed. And if you have a defiled heart, inevitably, you will produce detestable deeds. That's our next blink. If you have a defiled heart, what's inside, if you spend enough time with someone you'll know that what's inside comes out and you can only for so long put up a front. We recently got back from 
our trip at across the, well, not across, I guess we're in Central, but over to the East Coast. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about our trip was it was a week, one whole week with the youth. And, you know, when we see them two hours a week, you know, on a Sunday or, you know, coming up on Wednesdays and stuff like that, there's only so much, you know, only so much time they need to sort of cover up. And, and us too, I mean, you know, uh, we can cover up good for, for two days. But it was, a good, it was good to be out there for a whole week to spend with the youth and to, to really see how they interact with one another and how they respond to being sinned against and, and being wronged. And you really can't see that well. Uh, when you only spend, you know, two hours with them. So every now and again, we like to take the youth on uh, some trip to spend some time with them to, to really get to see them and get to know them. And, you know, the real you comes out, right, before too long. So these, these false teachers, they may claim to know God, they, they profess to know God, but ultimately it's going to be revealed in, in what they do, Right? And we know that in our own lives. There's only so much covering up that we can do for periods of time on end before someone just spends too much time with us and there it is. Now they know who we are, right? So don't ask the youth who I am. So I won't say who you guys are if you don't say who I am. So They're detestable deeds. Matthew 7, if you turn just a few chapters back, Matthew 7, we'll close it by looking at their detestable deeds and a few applications. In Matthew 7, as Jesus is nearing the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he has two lessons here which are going to be profitable for us to look at as we think about these false teachers and their actions and their deeds. The first we look at is the, the tree and the fruit. Listen as I read what Jesus has to say. Beware of false prophets, or in our case, false teachers, who come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly are ravenous wolves. And here we get this characteristic about them, um, much like Paul said, or the, the, the prophet, their own prophet, said that they're evil beasts. They're ravenous wolves. They're prowling on their prey. He says, beware of them who come in sheep clothings, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So here you have false teachers who fall short of the test of their consciences and their hearts. They are defiled. And inevitably, because they have defiled hearts, they fall short of the test of their character and their deeds as well. And we see that they profess to know God, but deny them by their deeds. They are disobedient, detestable, unfit for any good work. And also, just the, the next verse here in, in chapter 7 of Matthew. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So again, they can profess to know God, but God has appointed a day of judgment where we will all stand before him and those with detestable heart or defiled hearts and detestable deeds who have not been granted the, the life of, of Christ through faith, they're going to stand before God and they're going to be giving excuses for, for their character for, you know, by, by what they've done and, and, and the fact that they need to enter into heaven. And the Lord will say, depart from me, I never knew you. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their deeds. Ultimately, they are not his. Many of us use GPS here. Uh, I certainly use GPS. I was GPSing myself and James were recently GPSing to Janet and Clark's house. And uh, even though she gave me directions, I was riding with James in the passenger seat, and I didn't want to worry about telling him where to turn, so I just put it into the GPS, and um, we were listening to it as, as we were driving to their place. And before too long, we start to enter into Indianola. We're like, I think we missed the turn back there, James. And I look at the GPS, and the GPS like, turn right in 4.5 miles, and we're like, clearly it's back this way. So we turn back around, the GPS sort of, sort of course, course corrects, we think, and then it says, now it wants us to go 4.5 direction, miles in the other direction. So we're like, okay. So we start heading that direction, I was like, I'm not gonna follow the GPS anymore, because I, I but then I did end up following the GPS, and so we turned at Center Chapel, because I knew that's where uh, we were supposed to turn by talking with Janet previously, and then we turned right, and then we were going, and she said, she didn't say it would be this far, so I look at the GPS, and GPS is just wacko. So <laughs> nevertheless, we turn around, we get there, I have a conversation with Clark, and he tells me how, you know, he's tried to GPS to a, a, a lake before and end up in the middle of the field or one or the other, and G- sometimes you just can't trust the GPS. But what is the problem with the GPS? Is it that, you know, if you put in the area code without the city, maybe next time it'll work, or, you know, you find some way to, you know, cheat the system. Really, that's not the case with the GPS. What it is, it's bad maps, right? You have bad maps downloaded. Google hasn't updated, you know, the area. If you put in their old address, I believe you will get to their house correctly, but with a new address and the new changes, you won't get there. So nevertheless, the GPS has bad maps, and that's really the idea of what what is wrong with these false teachers. They're trying to get to God. They're trying to get to a de- destination by following bad maps, by following false, false teaching of their own and, and, and deceitful hearts of their own. So what is the application for us today? Clearly, Paul has appointed these elders in Crete for a purpose, for a reason, and it's to refute, to silence, to sharply rebuke these false teachers because he's concerned about the church. He's concerned about their understanding of, of who God is and what the gospel is. So we too need to be worry, worried about what we see in our culture, sort of the besetting sins of our culture and, and the messages that we're getting from our culture. You know, you, you don't have to ask too many people before you, you've heard someone who's been, you know, perhaps tried to have a message given to them about divorce. You know, if you're unhappy, they, they, that's one of the, the things. Selfism in our culture, which is one of our besetting sins, is a message of if you're not happy, then do something about it, right? Change it. You know, God doesn't want you to be happy. 
So if you're in a relationship where you feel unloved or you feel unhappy, then you just divorce, you just get out of it, and that's the answer. Well, clearly we know that, that that's not what the Bible teaches, and we have many of those things. If you're unhappy with the fact that you got pregnant when you didn't mean to, then there's an option for that, and you can use that, and that's clearly not what we should be trusting and, and believing in. So we have certainly some teaching in our culture that starts with this idea that God wants us to be happy, and anything that doesn't make us happy are things that we can, you know, just by choice, do away with. And um, we need to be aware of that. We also have a word here for the elders, right? You guys have a, a very important task here in our local church as you guys not only teach what, account, what accords with sound doctrine, but also refute those who, who disobey or, 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 or teach what doesn't account with sound doctrine. We don't have a ton of that at all that I know of, but our elders you know, need to be prepared, need to be worried for that, worried about that and prepared for that. And then last but not least, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul gives all of us a commission. He, he tells us to examine ourselves, examine yourself, to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So what is the application for us who aren't, you know, teachers of, uh, or who aren't experiencing false teaching much, or who aren't elders rebuking false teaching and, and, and teaching what, account, or what accords with sound doctrine? Well, we can guard our own hearts and, and trust and know that what the, what the gospel is so that we're not believing in and trusting in ways that we can get to, to God so that we can't be like these false teachers who deny him, deny God by their deeds while at the same time professing to, to know him. We have to know and understand what the gospel is. We have to know that, you know, it is by grace that we have been saved and not through works. There's nothing that we can add to the gospel that can make God happier with us or, or give us a, a better in route to salvation, otherwise we would get the credit for being saved. So those are uh, what we're looking at today, just a portrait of false teachers seen in their words, their character, their doctrine, their motivation, their danger, how to deal with them, how to deal with false teachers even to this day, and lastly but not least, the damnation of the false teachers, and what will happen to these false teachers ultimately, as God is not impressed with the things that we do, and, and he's certainly not owed anything because we do good works. So let's keep that in our hearts. I'll close, I think we have time for one song. I'll close in a word of prayer, and then we'll have the worship team come up. Dear God, thank you for this opportunity to, to see what it is that you would have us know and understand about false teachers, about those who assimilate into the church and try to teach things that don't accord with sound doctrine, don't accord with your gospel, but instead that, that disrupt and, and upset entire families, entire households. And I pray, Lord, that we would keep our eyes open for false teaching, that we would be sound and that we would be mature in the faith to recognize what is true and to hold fast to what is true, and to test everything, and to only hold that which, is what is, that which is good. And also, Lord, I pray for our elders here as they labor in the task of 
teaching what accords with sound doctrine and also rebuking those who teach otherwise or those who contradict it. I pray for them and, and their families and, and their lives, Lord, that you would continue to refresh them anew through your word, through your spirit. And Lord, all of us, I pray that you would give us an open eye to examine our hearts, examine our lives, that we don't end up with detestable or defiled hearts and detestable deeds, but that in examining ourselves, Lord, we can see where we fall short of, of what you have required in your word, what you have said about how we are supposed to act, and that we would come to you to receive the grace to understand properly what it is that we, you have for us as here as a local body here at Martinsville Community Church, and that you would give us the grace to trust in you and to know the gospel and to know that it isn't by anything that we do to be saved, but that you have given us the grace freely and that we would see that gift and know that gift and glorify you because of that gift. And now as we turn toward one more song, I pray that you would keep this message on our hearts, that we might glorify you in obeying it and believing it throughout the day. In your name we pray, amen.